You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. Sumesh Chetty is a portfolio manager at 91 in Cape Town, and he recently presented his views on the market via a slideshow. And I've received the slides, and I must say they're very interesting indeed. But also, somebody that was at the presentation said to me the following. He was very eloquent, and asked him at the end about the risks and where they find opportunity. And the risks were listed as deglobalization, the Delta variant, Afghanistan, China policy, etc. Plus the fact, it goes on to say, that global stocks are expensive. Samesh, thanks very much for joining me. I'd like to go through the slides first of all, but please bear in mind that at the end, even though I don't want to end on a negative, we have to talk about the risks. Is that okay with you? That's, that's great, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, as always. SA Quality Strategies is the first slide that I've got here, uh, but we need to go obviously below that and delve in beneath that headline. And you talk about your summary of strategies. Maybe you could embellish that particular slide. Yeah, sure. We have two flagship strategies in South Africa. The first is the Opportunity Fund. We launched the strategy back in 1997. So we have a very long track record of managing absolute return funds. We're looking to generate inflation plus 6% for investors. We don't want to lose capital on a rolling 24-month basis. And then the sister strategy is the cautious managed fund, where we look to generate um, inflation plus 4. It's more conservative. We don't want to lose capital on a rolling 18-month basis. And I guess the best way for investors to think about these funds is Opportunity is a multi-asset equity fund. Cautious Managed is a multi-asset fixed income fund, and they both follow the quality philosophy. So we want to buy um, the highest quality investments that we can find for investors. Not always easy in the South African context, so it's, it's good to have the 30% offshore. But of course, you know, in the South African context, we've got to be a little bit quality minus, because strictly speaking, resources, banks and insurers are not quality businesses, because you have uncertain revenue growth in the case of resource businesses. And in the case of banks and insurers, there's a lot of gearing, natural gearing, uh, inherent in their businesses. But, but you still have to make the best of the hand you're dealt. Slide number two, philosophy and process. I'm not going to be prescriptive when it comes to the numbers of the slides, but anyway, philosophy and process. And moving on from there, there are the three pillars. And I like the three pillars because they're understandable, but also they're quite deep. Number one, risk cognizant and underneath that absolute risk. Number two, quality centric, certainty of cash flows, terribly important. And number three, valuation discipline, reflecting risk and quality. Can we start at number one, please? Risk cognizant, always in the back of your mind then. You've not got a negative, but you're mindful that something could go wrong. So, I mean, it's interesting you say it's always in the back of our mind. Actually, you know, you read off risk quality and valuation. That's the order in which we apply these three pillars. So risk is actually front of mind for us. Because if you think about um, managers who build portfolios relative to an index, typically they look for the opportunity first and then think about portfolio construction relative to the index second. Or let's say they're constrained by the index. So when we approach portfolio construction, we're typically thinking, what is the risk of permanent loss of capital in any particular investment? And then we're also thinking about you know, how much risk does this investment add to the portfolio? So what does it do in terms of increasing the risk of the portfolio? So we look at those risk-adjusted returns, and there's a place for investments that have a lot of volatility or that are cyclical or appear in isolation to have risk, especially 
when they offset risk elsewhere in the portfolio. So we like negatively correlated investments because they naturally reduce risk. And a great example of that is South African bonds, which people used to hate a few years ago, and um, offshore investments because bonds do poorly when the RAND is weakening and your offshore investments do well and vice versa. When your offshore investments aren't doing well because the RAND is strengthening, bonds do very well. So that, that's really the concept behind that risk. Don't lose money and make sure you've got balance in the portfolio. Quality-centric. Quality is a word that 91 uses more than most asset managers, I think. Yeah, I think so. Although, um, you know, I've noticed it creeping into the vocabulary of other managers recently. And I think there's just a greater appreciation that if you're a long-term investor, your focus really should be on quality um, because quality ultimately is what fundamental investing is about because you're focusing on that one key thing cash flow. You know, you've heard old accountants say it time and time again, watch cash flow, because cash flow gives you a sense of the health of a business. But beyond cash flow, the other thing we focus on is return on invested capital. Too often, I think investors focus on total shareholder returns. You know, what is the price doing? What's the dividend I'm getting out of this business? But what you've got to do is you've got to figure out if the management who run these businesses are appropriately allocating the capital that they have available to them. So, you know, the equity capital they've raised in the market or the, the, the money that they've borrowed from the banks or the market itself, so the debt capital. Because if you're not generating a return in excess of your weighted average cost of capital, you're destroying value. Now, people get that concept very easily when you've borrowed money. You know, you take money out of your mortgage and you know, if, if your mortgage rate is 9% and, the, and you invest in something generates, generating 6%, you can see the value destruction. But too often in the equity market, because management teams do not have to pay dividends, they don't have to return capital, people don't think hard enough about that cost of equity. So that, that's something we are very disciplined about, making sure there's economic value creation by measuring the return on invested capital. Versus, versus the weighted average cost of capital and making sure it's consistently above. And more importantly, you know, it's, it's not just luck, but the quality elements of the business mean that it's sustainable going forward. If you combine the first risk and the second quality, you get to valuation discipline number three, and that reflects right. both risk and quality. You meld the two together. Correct. And the point we're making here is that too often people will look at businesses that are relatively low risk and very high quality and they'll go, you can't touch these businesses. These businesses are so expensive relative to the market or they equally value to the market. And there tends to be a bias in South Africa where um, people look for companies trading at massive discounts to their fair values, you know, 10, 20, 30 percent discount. And, you know, uh, just shorthand, we talk about P.E. ratios in, in South Africa, in fact, across the world. You talk about P.E. ratios of forward P.E.s. And if a company is trading above its forward P.E., oh, it's expensive. It's trading below its forward P.E., it's cheap. But, but again, looking at just this one calculation, this is this concept of return on invested capital. Because time and time again, you know, irrespective of the quality businesses you look at, you know, whether you, you look at the market as a whole, what we found is that the market perpetually underprices the quality nature of the businesses. And what I mean by that is you could have a business that is compounding its economic value by 25% per annum versus a business that's compounding its economic value, very average business, by 14% per annum. They're both generating returns in excess of the cost of capital, and the market may place them on the same valuation. Or alternatively, the market may place the quality business on a slightly higher valuation, maybe 
20% more, 30% more. And people look at that. They look at the double-digit PE multiple, and they say, wow, this business is expensive. But if, if the first business is compounding economic value at 60% more than the second business, it should be trading significantly higher than a 20% premium. And as a result of this, these quality companies, you know, I don't want to call them cheap, but, but they are underpriced relative to the market. So that's what our valuation discipline centers around. It's not about finding low PE stocks. It's making sure that the valuations appropriately reflect both the risk and the quality in the stock. Okay, we've got to go now to positioning and outlook. I mean, there's so many things, and we won't be able to cover them all in assiduous detail. But anyway, we've got asset allocation, we've got capital allocation, you've got your top 10 foreign equity holdings, you've got the outlook for the RAND, you've got real yields, the bond market. So you're going to have to cherry pick here, please, Sumesh. Okay, so let's talk very quickly to the first two slides. So the COVID slide and the Fed uh, policy response slide. So... There are two significant risks in, in the market today, and there are flip sides of the same coin. And I don't, and people do appreciate the risk. You can see how the market is vacillating based on the information flow. But let's talk about COVID first. And, you know, there's a bifurcated view around COVID. There are the optimists who believe that um, COVID will be solved. Human ingenuity will save the day. You know, by the end of 2022, the world will be vaccinated or a large portion of the world will be vaccinated. Those who at least want access to the vaccine. Maybe by 2023, everything is fine. Economies reopen. There's a significant amount of growth. And then there are, of course, the pessimists who say that, well, we're going to live with this thing forever. And they're not even in the camp that says, well, this COVID ultimately becomes like the flu. And it just becomes something mild where we have to take a flu shot every year if required. But th those are potentially two extreme scenarios. And if we have to live with an extreme version of COVID forever, gr growth is significantly impaired, especially if consumption doesn't return. Remember, about 65% of South African GDP is consumption-related, and about 70% of the U.S. GDP is consumption-related. And this is ultimately where China is trying to get to, very high levels of consumption in the economy, because that drives the consistency of growth. So COVID, in an intense form, stays with us for a very, very long time. This growth is impaired. But on the other side, if we solve COVID, growth returns, you know, and you can argue that growth is going to be exactly what it was in the past, or there'll be a significant bump initially, and then it will fade to whatever it was in the past, or whatever you want to, but, but the world normalizes in some way. But the problem with normalization becomes the second chart, and the second chart relates to policy response from the Fed. Yes. Now, the Fed has engaged in quantitative easing for a number of years. You go back to 2007, and the balance sheet of the Fed was $500 billion. As a result of the global financial crisis, that went up to $2.5 trillion. We called that QE1. Uh, QE2 took you up to about $3 trillion. The Fed tried to taper back then. We had that massive taper tantrum with bond yields in the U.S. spiking to about 3%. And then, of course, the Fed stimulated again and took the balance sheet to $4.5 trillion. Now, at the back end of 2018, the Fed started allowing debt to roll off its balance sheet. In other words, debt to mature. So they weren't actively selling debt from their balance sheet. They, they just allowed debt to mature and the balance sheet shrunk somewhat. And the market was having none of it. And in the last quarter of 2018, the peak to trough on the S&P 500 was approximately 
negative 18%. And it doesn't get spoken about a lot. No one goes, oh, there was this huge bear market at the back end of 2018. Because, you know, I I look at it cynically and say, well, it didn't touch the magical threshold of negative 20%, which everyone seems to look for before they call something a bear market. Yes, but before you go on, sorry to interrupt you, Samish, before you go on, the fact is that it was almost a bear market and then the bulls and the Fed intervened. But the point was that the sell-off of 18% was purely ephemeral. It was a moment in time. So anyway, move on from there, if you would. Of course. And so then the Fed had to stimulate again. And then, of course, we had COVID and the balance sheet's been taken up to $8 trillion. So the concern is this. If we solve COVID, the balance sheet needs to be shrunk because there's too much easy money in the world. Of course, interest rates are going to go up. The Fed was successful in raising interest rates to an extent post-GFC. It took them a long time to do it, but they didn't manage to shrink the balance sheet. But given the easy capital in the world, the balance sheet does need to go down or inflation potentially becomes a problem. So, you know, without significant dislocation and significant pain, I don't see how the balance sheet problem gets solved. And similarly, you know, Delta is proving to be very problematic. And the biggest risk we run, of course, is that the Delta variant of COVID finds a way of mutating around the vaccines. The irony is the best outcome for the world is probably some form of financial repression where interest rates at the short end stay low because we don't quite solve COVID, which means that the U.S. Fed doesn't quite have to reduce its balance sheet yet, which means that inflation remains slightly elevated. And the outcome that you get is this muddle through where governments and corporates around the world get to partially solve their debt problem because inflation actually grows nominal GDP. And as a result, debt to GDP reduces. You know, that's one potential outcome. But that that extreme outcome of we solve COVID, there are still risks off the back of that. And it's the balance sheet risk of the US Fed that keeps us up at night. Other risks as well, before we go to part two of this conversation, I, the summary, where you're positioned, your asset allocation, your top 10 stocks overseas and also locally. But give us other risks as well, notably what's happened in the last couple of weeks in Afghanistan and others. I'm sure you've got others as well. Tell me about your no, risks. Of course, of course. So when we think about those risks, so the level of debt across the globe is, is a significant risk because ultimately, you know, we've, we are seeing one of the peak levels of debt to GDP and we're also seeing an excessive, excessive amount of corporate debt around the world right now. So we've spoken about the government debt. We've got corporate debt. We've got the risk to growth around COVID. You have the inflation risk potentially. Is inflation transitory? Is inflation ultimately permanent? And then, of course, you come down to what's happening with China and the U.S. in the midst of all of this and the risk around that being ultimately potentially deglobalization. So China and U.S. both jostling to be number one in the world right now. You know, China is not comfortable with the fact that the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency China actually wants appropriate recognition for what it's doing. But even worse, a lot of Western money has gone into China. And China needs the investment, of course. But Western money has gone into China with a Western lens. Because ultimately, capitalist thinking has driven investment in China. But China is a communist country at the end of the day. The China Communist Party is the party that governs China. And this communist regime or the socialist regime ultimately is looking for equality. And the risk we face today, the the risk that investors are very much feeling, given the way Chinese stocks have gone down, is the fact that you have a government who's looking for equality or wanting to ensure a broader spread of profitability or access to services like additional tuition. So, you know, you have to clamp down on the private education providers. And in the context of China, what China is doing might be exactly the right thing for China. 
But what we worry about is perhaps investors haven't appropriately attached risk to their investment. So in other words, they didn't demand the right risk premium. Because not only do you have a different mentality, people forget that the rule in China is ultimate when it comes to the CCP. And at the end of the day, it's an emerging economy. So we so quickly look at South Africa and go, oh, look at the risks. The risks make it uninvestable. You can't buy these businesses or you can't buy these bonds. But no one thinks about that when it comes to China. And off the back of this, you know, if you have both the U.S. and China pushing hard against each other, you know, the SEC in the U.S. just came out recently and has put a halt to any Chinese company listing on a U.S. exchange that has that variable interest entity structure that everyone is worried about. Uh, but if you, if you look at this jostling between the two governments, ultimately, China needs to ensure um, self-sustenance. So it, it can't rely on um, global players for microchips, for example. It will have to develop its own skill at manufacturing microchips. And what you might actually find is that these two superpowers um, have to create a multipolar world where other countries may need to align. And in an environment where you can't rely on the most efficient process to manufacture something, maybe you're a little less inefficient, what that does is it actually drives prices up across the globe and it increases uh, inefficiency. So potentially, it impairs growth while increasing inflation. And that, that, of course, is a risk to us. That keeps us up at night. Sumesh, thank you very much. Part one has concluded with risks and very pertinent risks as well. Part two will follow shortly. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organization, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.